I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And it's good to push yourself to think differently, to re-examine your priors, question your beliefs, change your mind. But it's not enough to stop there, to switch from right to left or left to right, or from heterodox Pepsi to heterodox Coke. Introspection is a train without a station, something that should just keep going. Our returning guest this week discusses the sometimes difficult but rewarding task of remaining a work in progress. Brittany Talissa King is a freelance writer, journalist, and host of the YouTube show American Shade, quote, a bipartisan hangout for people to think, where she explores American cultural issues with nuance and candor. She's been published at multiple outlets, including The Republic, The Daily Beast, Forward Magazine, and Tablet Magazine. Brittany, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, welcome back. So great to talk to you again. It really is. It's really great to have you back on. You are the second person to have two appearances on the show after Jay Shapiro. Oh. And I really, I couldn't be happier to talk with you again. We've got a lot of ground to cover. A lot has happened since we last spoke on October 18th, 2020. During our conversation, what became episode eight of the show, actually, we spoke about your journey to becoming what I suppose one would call a heterodox thinker, I think is best summed up in a quote of yours from that episode. So if you'll allow me, I want to read a quote from you to you to kind of help the listeners out. So you said, quote, People assume if you like John McWhorter or Thomas Sowell or Coleman Hughes, you can't like Coates or Baldwin or Maya Angelou. There's no way. They're in different types of houses. But to me, there's no house. There's no binary. To me, everyone brings something. I don't see that because I like Coleman Hughes, I can't like Coates. Because I enjoy Jordan Peterson, I can't like this or that. I'm going to listen to as many minds as I can and make up my mind and critically get to a point where I can consider what they have. And if they offer that up, that's fine. But I don't have to throw that person out. And in 2015, I would have said the opposite, end quote. And as of this recording, you've released 36 more videos on your YouTube channel, American Shade. And I imagine that number will be quite a bit higher by the time this episode goes live. You've had on some great guests. You've spoken about colorism with YouTuber Kadisha Mbowe, Black Identity with fellow superstar and guest of the podcast, Aisha Akambi. You've hosted panel discussions on cancel culture and most recently critical race theory with advocates on both sides of what has become a rather (laughs) contentious topic, (laughs) to say the least. And you appeared on the Dark Horse podcast with Brett Weinstein, a famous founding member of the informally grouped intellectual dark web. Not to mention everything that's happened in the world since last October, I would say quite a bit. So to start us off, where are you in your personal journey now? And how do you feel about where our culture is today? Oh my gosh. I just feel like I had flashbacks of you saying all that. Just a small little question to start us off. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, wow, all of that happened that did. Where am I at? You know, that's a great question because I am saying that question to myself. I'm currently right now visiting in New York and I've been wondering, what is this platform going to be? I realized that perhaps that this platform where I kind of take my own critiques and my objective takes on things on race, mostly race relations between the dynamics of black and white Americans. I've been doing that a lot. But then I realized, I'm like, is this forum on YouTube more so for people to have their conversations? And I explored this 
experiment, so to speak, when I did my first live show with Kimmy Katiti. She's awesome. Up and coming star on YouTube. She's been going viral. Awesome. Yeah, I've seen some of her videos. And I did a live show and I brought on my subscribers or just viewers that might have just chimed in or some of Kimmy's subscribers and had them talk and have them discuss. And they had a lot to say. They had a lot of opinions. They had different opinions. They had opposing views of mine. But I'm realizing that people are just hungry to talk and hungry to talk with other people. So I think right now I'm still trying to answer that question, but I think I'm going to extend American shade to the people and create forums for people to talk with other people in the country that they probably might not have ever been able to. So yeah, that's where I am right now. I honestly wish I can give a better answer, but I am literally in that blueprint of what's next because it's been a crazy, crazy year. I think that's great. I mean, and honestly, it is in keeping with the kind of person I've known you to be, obviously, in this short period of time that I've been aware of you both on Twitter and YouTube and the conversations I've seen you have and the one that we had last year. You seem to be someone who is kind of not that comfortable with just staying the same, right? So the idea that your YouTube channel is kind of growing and changing as you're constantly reassessing yourself and kind of the role you want to play and how you see yourself. I mean, that makes total sense. I mean, that subtitle to your show, a bipartisan hangout for people to think, I don't remember that being there. I just did that today. (laughs) Well, there there you go. It seems to be a reflection of kind of where you see the show going because your show kind of started out with you kind of sliding into, I think, a familiar genre on YouTube where people will comment on other videos. You were providing a really interesting and I think provocative and truthful take on a lot of these things. But I've seen how your channel has changed over the last couple months as you've been hosting more people on. And it's really become a place where not only other panelists, but also, as you've said, even your own audience members can kind of talk about issues that are really important. And I think you've said it exactly right. People are desperate to get their views out there, to get thoughts that they have in their heads off their chests and just talk with other people. Mm -hmm. That is true. And also what I've seen with the comments I've been getting, emails, you know, messages through every social media, even through LinkedIn, I've been getting these things, which is awesome. And I'm grateful for it. But the consistent like through line of truth that I've seen with majority of these messages I get from people is the fact that it doesn't even matter if they agreed with the conversation. It doesn't even matter if they had a dog in the fight. Like People are starving to witness opposing views talk respectfully. I think that's really what people want to see. They want to see, can this be done? It's like inspirational. It's like, that's the thing people are wanting. It's not like they're tuning in. I mean, I'm not saying this is everyone, but the ones that message me, which is a lot of people, it's like, they're not really tuning into certain conversations to see, oh, which one will, you know, win or who will be persuaded. They're like, just, can they stick it out and stay in good faith? Can they give me that type of drive that then I can do that? Like, that is what I'm seeing. And I'm thinking... That is why I'm like, okay, maybe this platform is evolving where this is where people can come and have your point of view and have this as an unsafe, respectful space, hopefully, where you can discuss things and you might not change your mind. You might even believe in what you 
believed in even more after the conversation. But just that interaction and that dialogue with another person that just respected you, you carry that in your life. That will ripple effect on other people. So that when you encounter that with a stranger that's not on YouTube, you take that same approach and you realize, okay, how I feel about what I think and my ideas and how true I feel it is, is how they feel. So I need to give them the respect that I want. And it sounds so cliche, but I'm like, it really is kind of down to that. And I know if people tune in to that last live stream I did with Kimi Katiti, that's what we talked a lot about was just basic respect is what most people want. And I think that is unity. Like it's not this holding hands and like hugging and dancing around a rainbow. It's not that. It's not this utopia of just friendships and glitter. No, it's can we just on a baseline level respect each other? Like that's a realistic idea of unity. Like I'm unified to the fact that I'm not going to agree with every American here, but every American has the right to think what they want to think. What you just said, there is a through line between the conversation you had with Kimi Katiti and Brett Weinstein. I realized I mispronounced his name the first time. It's kind of a force of habit, Brett Weinstein. And also your CRT panels, which is you're not always agreeing with the people you're talking with. But I also noticed that you don't make a point of disagreement, right? Like you and Brett didn't see eye to eye on certain things. You would disagree with him, but you wouldn't take offense to what he was saying or try and force him to see things your way. You would just explain your point of view and listen to his. And if you guys found common ground, great. And if you didn't find common ground, that was also fine. And I noticed the same thing with you and Kimmy, whether you were talking about critical race theory or what it means to be black or your shared history of religion. I noticed that that was like a common thread. And that is a really interesting thing to note because as I said, when I was quoting you back to you a few minutes ago, you were not that person a few years ago. I imagine that the Britney of just a few years ago might have taken offense if someone didn't see eye to eye with them or disagreed with them. And this change, particularly from you of last fall, when you were exploring how you could expand your own mind and hold conflicting views in your own mind at the same time, which I relate to in some respects as well. Over the last few years, I've had to like, okay, just because I'm thinking about a conservative view that I might disagree with or disagreeing with a far left view that's in my head, like I don't have to let that get to me. I don't have to let that grind me down. That's one of the reasons I connected with your tablet essay and with your medium essays on a whole, that sort of similar thing. But it seems like you're now taking that view that you had in your own mind of letting those uncomfortable views that you might not even agree with sit in your head and just exist, you're now taking that and putting it outward where it's like, okay, well, in the same way that I allowed conflicting views to just sit in my head and be at peace with that, I'm now bringing other people in to talk with, whether they're guests of the show or audience members, and we can just all coexist like the thoughts in your mind and talk with each other. And we don't have to focus on the fact that we might disagree. It's just about sharing our views. Exactly. And it's funny you bring up that conversation with Brett and how we did disagree on stuff, but neither of us felt the need to like bait each other. It's funny because I looked at that interview and I realized that one spot that I know three years ago 
or in 2016, 2015, like where I would have reacted to what he said in a way of using my feelings to talk. And it was when he described this moment where there was this black family and I guess a park or something. Oh and yeah. Usually, when he was in the park. Yeah. 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 He said, usually before this time, before like the racial tension was really, really hot right now, he would have went through them and said hello or went around them and engaged in conversation. But he said, because there's a different tone with race relations with specifically between white and black Americans, he started thinking about all these scenarios in his mind, like, oh, if I do approach them, will they think I'm a threat or will they get uncomfortable or what are they thinking about me? Like, So he went around them. The way you handled that answer was like a masterclass, if I'm being honest. That's the thing, because I thought about it and I was like, wow, like years ago, I would have been like, I would have reacted in a way where it wouldn't have been conducive for the conversation. And I would have heard Brett in a different way. And it, I don't want to say ignorant, but a way where it's like, well, duh, this is what black people go through, right? I didn't even think about it like that. When he said that to me, I was like, oh, that's exactly how it feels like when in certain spaces or places you go, depending on where you are in this country. It is complicated being black because sometimes you think people think you're a threat or you are thinking, what are people thinking of you? Like if I was in that park and was a white family, will I walk through them and say hello? Well, I, on a normal day, won't do that just because it's it's not even anything I'm thinking through. It's like just so subconscious where it just happens. But when he said that, I was like, oh, this is an opportunity where Brett is saying this as a white man and his base could maybe get it, maybe understand this paranoia that black people feel that they don't want to feel that we do not want to feel this way. We don't want this paranoia like buzzing in our ear. But if the fact that he just explained how this was and was so clear with all the imagery, I'm like, if people will wind this back and hear what you just said, that's what Black Americans feel a lot of the time, depending where they are. And that actually, there were so many people that commented on that that said, I didn't understand the whole microaggression thing or little things like that or like, how Black Americans, I didn't understand why some people felt like, oh, I can't go over here. I can't go over there. Like, afraid to like just roam the earth because of your skin. I didn't get that. But sadly, it did take a white man. And for you to be like, oh, that's how I feel for me to like, dang, okay, I get it now. That opportunity would have been completely missed years ago. That moment, I just knew. But the thing is, this is why I'm such a proponent for thinking. And it's so like, well, duh, we all think. No, all of us do not actually think. We react and we respond. We don't think though, because thinking requires you to wait and to be patient and to make logical sense of the ideas that you're digesting. Like, So when I was listening to Brett, I didn't react to what he said. I was thinking about what he was telling me. And therefore I was able to make logical sense of, oh, this is exactly what I feel like. And this is exactly a great opportunity to showcase that through his own experience for his audience that knows him. So that is why I I changed my mantra, so to speak, of American Shade today to bipartisan hangout for people to think, because I wasn't doing much of that years ago. 
I was just reacting and letting my feelings call the shots, not my logic. Because I'm like, well, with race, I don't need logic. I'm black. I know it all. And then I had a rude awakening. We talked about that last, <laughs> last time. But yeah, that is why I didn't at all feel the need to fight Brad. I don't feel the need to fight anyone I have a conversation with. And it's, I don't know if it can be completely compared to this. I'll just use this analogy. It's like when people learn Kung Fu, you don't learn Kung Fu to start beating people up. You learn Kung Fu because you learn how to defend yourself. And that actually makes you less defensive in the world because you know you can protect yourself. So when you come against a threat, you're like, oh, I got this. But you don't walk around like all macho, like I'm going to beat someone up. No, you have this calm, humble, confidence. Like if it gets down to that, I can take care of business. And you have like this less like abrasive demeanor with people just because you're like, I don't need to do that because I got this. And that's kind of how it is when one, not to say I 100% learned the craft of critical thinking and I'm like, no, but when you're confident in what you believe and not believe because you just feel like, yeah, this is right. But when you've sat down with your ideas and made logical sense of it, you can talk with someone that doesn't agree with you because you can express why you believe what you believe with facts, research, et cetera. Like you don't feel defensive because if I did, that just means that I feel like exposed. That's what that is. I don't feel like that in conversations. Now, sometimes if someone asks me a question or if someone wants me to elaborate on something else, I have no problem being pretty overt with, I don't know that answer. I don't know. But before I would be like, it doesn't matter. This is my experience. Like that's what you do when you might not know a thing. You're like, this is my experience. And then no one can touch you. But yeah, I just, I've noticed that. Like I've noticed how calm I am when I talk to people because I don't feel the need to win against you at all. If anything, I just want to understand why you believe what you believe that much. Like I want to know, because especially if I disagree with you, like I love those conversations because I'm like, I got to get into the why, because what you're telling me, I know that's not even it. Like, let's keep going. <laughs> let's keep on going. So yeah, I'm more intrigued with people I disagree with than threatened. I don't feel threatened at all. And that's a great place to be in conversations like this. There was a guest I had on episode 30, journalist and author Amanda Ripley. She wrote this book called High Conflict, specifically talking about what high conflict is and how it happens and how we can get out. And high conflict is the kind of conflict where you kind of feel like you're losing your mind and you stop understanding the other side and you're just repeatedly baffled by why they would ever believe what they believe. You actually can't bring yourself to understand what motivates them. Everything they say and feel feels alien to you. You've just basically lost any kind of connection to their humanity or their point of view. And I think you have to have a certain kind of confidence in yourself and a detachment between your identity, which you have to feel secure in, and the thoughts and beliefs that you have in order to kind of receive that sort of information in the way that you are now receiving it. Because if you see your beliefs as this 
always interconnected part of yourself, then any quote unquote attack on your beliefs will be taken as an attack on yourself, Brittany, right? Or Mm -hmm. they're disagreeing with me, therefore they are disagreeing with my personhood or they're somehow attacking me. And once you can kind of move beyond that and be like, okay, well, this person has a different point of view. And how can I, and Amanda talks about this in her book, it's something known as looping for understanding, where basically you actively listen to what the person is saying, not with the idea that you have to agree with anything they're saying, but you just need to listen in order to understand what they're saying. And then the whole point is to then repeat in your own words what they said back to them so that they feel heard and understood. And then you use that as the grounds for a productive conversation. Because if someone feels like you're hearing them, again, you don't have to agree, but if someone feels like you're hearing them truly as they intend to be heard, then you can move forward understanding that you're both listening to one another. Mm -hmm. And I found that instance with you and Brett when he was talking about that moment in the park. One, I totally understood what he meant because as a white dude, I have felt those thoughts before in the past. So I like, I got what he was saying, even though as he was saying it, because of the time that I've spent, you know, having conversations and doing reading and stuff like I one was like, okay, I totally get it. I have thought that thought before, like, oh, this bums me out because I used to be able to feel more comfortable and now I'm less comfortable. But then I also, as I was hearing him saying it, I was like, oh no, Mm -hmm. I could have seen how that could have gone completely south had he been talking to someone else, right? But I think that what was so brilliant about your perspective on that and how you received it was finding that commonality. Because we talked about this a bit in the last conversation, which is that the racialization, right? Although Black Americans have been (laughs) on the horrible, horrific, atrocious receiving end of racialization in America, both white and Black people, and with recent Asian and Hispanic arrivals, but historically, the two teams, so to speak, white Americans and Black Americans, Black Americans have been on the awful receiving end of racialization, but ultimately, it hurts everyone involved. And so because of the lies that have been told over the course of history, the ones that have been used to hold down Black Americans and keep them from progressing, to enslave them, to segregate them, etc., that has completely affected them to great detriment, right? But that also Mm -hmm. means that it has filled white Americans' minds in many ways with very harmful lies about things like, quote unquote, black criminality and violence, etc., where you get into a situation, right, which has been historically the black experience almost exclusively, which is some white person is walking down the street and sees a six foot tall black dude walking the other way and the woman grips her purse, right? Mm. And the thought that runs through the black dude's mind is I'm like a nice guy on my way to the bank. I have no intent to rob you or something. And yet you assume that about me rather than take me as an individual, right? Mm. And Brett was expressing a, I would say, what is rather new to white Americans over the last couple decades of feeling a variation of that Mm -hmm. for the first time, let's say, right? And and Brett's like a hyper-intelligent dude. I've listened to his podcast. Like I have all the respect for him. I understood the emotional thrust of what he was saying, which is why I think you handled it as well as you did. But why I think that these kind of vulnerable conversations are so important is that by finding that commonality of, hey, I'm empathetic to how you were feeling, and I want you to know that this is how we have been feeling 
for our entire existence and trying to bridge that through empathy, mm. like that's what moves us forward, right? Not all like the endless screaming mm -hmm. and you'll never know my experience, but you have to know it. You can never understand me, but you must understand me. And like all these back and forths, like it actually takes those sometimes awkward, sometimes foot in mouth, but we can't get to know each other without being vulnerable and expressing our Sometimes our ignorance, I mean, God knows I'm ignorant about a ton of stuff, but if I don't say it out loud, if I don't mm -hmm. risk putting my foot in my mouth, how on earth am I going to connect with other people and learn? Exactly. That is a good point. And with that, let's just say that was me 2015, or let's just say that was Robin D'Angelo. She would have been like, this is white fragility. That's white fragility. Like, that's not your emotion. Like, But that right there, and that would be like a progressive take like a societal construction of progressive, but not to say what I did was progressive, but what me and Brett did in that exchange was we dived into the awkwardness of that. Race conversations and conversations on racism and race relations as a whole, like it's ugly conversations. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. Like I wasn't uncomfortable when he said that, but I never heard a white person say that to a black person. Like I've never heard a white person basically more or less say, I know how it feels to be black in a sense. Does that make sense? Not to say that he was saying that verbatim, but that would be what I would hear years ago. Right. What he was expressing in that moment, and I, I know I'm hammering this particular point of a conversation in a podcast that isn't even the one that we're on right now. That was such a crucial moment, in my opinion, because I think a lot of quote unquote, well-meaning, right? Like white people, can feel that way, right? Like they want to be like, I'm not one of the bad ones and I don't like that you assume I am. But that is the thing. Like that, <laughs> that is mm. feeling mm. racialized, right? Like that is feeling mm. not an individual. That is feeling grouped with other people. That is feeling not to be seen as who you are, individual Michael, let's say, or Brett or whoever, that is you now feeling what it means to feel like, oh, are they looking at me like someone from January 6th? Mm. Do they think that I'm one of those people that is going to shout the N-word at them? Mm -hmm. I don't like how that feels. I want to just be able to walk up to this person in the park and say hello, but now I'm second-guessing myself. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about with you, which I think is relevant to the discussion you were having about critical race theory with that group of panelists you had some pretty well-known folks from both sides of the aisle, so to speak. Before we get into the whole idea of labels and kind of the slippiness of what words mean and what the hell is critical race theory anyway and woke versus anti-woke, like, what were your takeaways from that conversation? I know that your audience really appreciated it from what I can tell, but what were your takeaways from it and what was kind of the general reception after you finished it? I think the number one takeaway I had while I was engaging in conversation with them and listening to them, kind of being a fly on the wall and letting them just go for it. And then afterwards editing and really seeing, I was like, they want the same thing. I feel like the end goal is the same. The approach and the direction is polar opposite. They just don't see how to get to the goal. They just don't understand how the other side thinks that's the way. Like one side's like, no, we don't need to racialize things to unify. We don't need to really bring in history too much. Like we need to talk about the present and the right now, get off the identity politics. And then the other side is like, no, we need a deep dive in history. We need to understand the past before we can understand the future. But at the end, everyone wants peace with the other side. Like everyone wants 
actual progression with race relations, but it's just completely opposite. And that was my number one takeaway. And I think that was their takeaway. I think Dr. Casey even said, and she was on the pro side and she I actually, yeah, that's the question I asked him. I said, what is your take? Which, what's your final thoughts about this? And she's like, at this point, I don't even know which one's anti or pro. We're all kind of on the same ground. I'm like, that's kind of what I wanted people to see because what I was seeing on a more macro level, especially on Twitter, I was just like, you guys, yeah, you're saying different things, but you guys are wanting the same thing. Why are we like coming at it with the differences and not seeing like, okay, we both want this thing. This is the solution. So. Let's like work on that. Let's like work on getting there and like compromising with each other. And I wanted to use this micro example of a larger thing that's going on in this country. And the reception was really great. I didn't think, I mean, not to say like, I didn't think it was going to be a good discussion. I thought it was. I picked these people on purpose because I felt like they would be honest. They'd be transparent. It would be no holds barred, but they would keep respectful but wouldn't be afraid to challenge. And that's what happened. But at the end of it, everyone was just so stoked to keep the conversation going in good faith and like, we're doing a part two soon. And the reception that I got from both sides, people that are pro, people that are anti, people that are in between, people that really don't understand what's going on, like, but curious about CRT. I was so surprised that both sides were like saying the same things. Like, I'm glad that we finally have a debate where both sides got to express themselves and no one was shot down with just expressing their point and people were really listening to each other. That is what I heard from anti-CRTers and pro-CRTers. Like people that literally cannot stand CRT were saying this was a great debate and now I do understand the pro side. I don't agree, but I understand where they're coming from more so now because the conversation and how they were talking with the other people disarmed me from being offended or offensive while listening. Like they really could listen as well. So that is one episode that I'm really proud of just because it seemed to have helped a lot of other people. And also because none of those people knew each other. Well, some of them knew each other beforehand. And now they all follow each other on Twitter. Like y'all are retweeting each other and, it's not even like we all agree. No, it's not that. But we all had an experience where we disagreed and we actually just understand each other better. That I love. And that was actually the goal. Because I prefaced the discussion that this is not an episode where it's going to be a victor and a loser. That's not what this is. I put that in the email too. So they already knew like this is not going to be a conversation where someone's going to be crowned the champion. Like this is just for you all to understand why the other side believes what they believe. Therefore, that will translate to the viewers and beyond. And, but I did say, but you can challenge people. Like if you disagree, okay. The only rule I had was no ad hominem attacks and derogatory, you know, words, uh, racial epithets, obviously no. (laughs) So everyone knew the ground rules, but it was pretty free. I'm like, you guys are adults. and. I want you guys to have the conversation because I was going to moderate pretty heavy-ish. Like I was going to be like, okay, I'm going to ask this, this. But I was like, you know what? No, here's an opportunity for experts in their field or people that have really been engaging in this, just for me to offer up my platform for them to talk. And I said, if I needed to interject, I will. 
but I didn't need to. At one moment, I asked one question and then went on for almost an hour and I didn't stop it because I was like, no, this is real dialogue and engagement. Like this isn't an event. Like this is like real life. The reception was awesome. The conversation was awesome. And I'm glad it did what it did. So I'm excited for part two. Yeah, me too. And there was one of the guests on that panel, Sam, I'm blanking on his last name, goes by Deontologist on Twitter. Mm-hmm. He was one of your guests, and he was recently on another panel about CRT on another channel, which I will not name because it was complete. I uh, saw it. Yeah, you know. I saw. I mean, I see all of it, but I saw some of it. What a train wreck! And I think it was a train wreck because the kind of ground rules and ultimately what the purpose of the discussion was was entirely differently framed from how you framed it ostensibly that other channel said that it was about like understanding one another, but it quickly just deteriorated on the quote unquote anti-woke side, just constantly trying to win and being really uncharitable. And it just kind of devolved into this complete kind of name calling mess, which I think conversations around hot button topics like this, if you're not careful, and if you don't set a kind of ground level expectation of mutual respect, even if you don't agree with someone, things can get really bad really fast. And Mm -hmm. to reference Amanda Ripley's book one more time, because and I'm referencing it here, because I think even if you haven't read it, you are really practicing a lot of the things that she talks about. One of the most important things to understand per her book in kind of de-escalating high conflict and getting from that place where you can't understand that person because their views just baffle you to being able to really reach a point of understanding, even if you disagree is understanding what the understory of that conversation is. And what that means is, in the context of that book, the understory is what a topic is really about, not what people are talking about, right? So Mm -hmm. when, and I think this is true with like a lot of different labels, whether it's like critical race theory or woke or anti-woke or red-pilled or whatever, when the average person is talking about critical race theory, they're not really talking about that. Whatever side of the quote-unquote debate they're on, that's not what it is why I'm so exhausted with like all of these labels and discussions is because I really just want to ask people, what do you want? Whatever your perspective is, if you're on the left or the right or woke or anti-woke, like what do you want in your life and what do you need? Right. And if you tell me like in concrete terms, right, underneath all the layers of abstractions of, oh, like they're coming for our history or whatever, like, okay, whatever. There is something deeper and more emotional underneath that, that if we can get to that, then we can have a more productive conversation. They're usually very basic emotions, right? Like, I want Mm -hmm. to feel safe. I want to feel respected. I want to feel seen. I want to feel heard. I want to feel valuable, right? Whatever those things are, those are usually like the very base things. If you just peel away all the layers of all the academic baloney, whatever it is, that's ultimately what that onion peels itself away to reveal. And why I am kind of burnt out on all of this academic talk is, yes, it's important in some ways to understand our world, but ultimately people are pretty simple in terms of what drives them day to day, right? Like we don't have long academic discussions on why people eat you're like, no, people eat because they're hungry. You know, we can get into like the nutritional information and different recipes and diets and stuff. But like, if you peel away everything, people eat every day because they're hungry and they need food to survive. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, every discussion that we have about any topic is ultimately going to boil down 
to something similarly simple, right? Like I want good schools for my kids. I want to feel safe in my streets. I want to feel judged based on whoever I am rather than who you think that I might be, right? And that's why I want to move past so many of these high-level discussions about abstractions that people are screaming about at PTA meetings and just get to like, what is the meat of this? Again, we don't have to agree, but I feel like we can better understand what we want. And I bet we probably have a lot in common, even if we have different ideas about how to accomplish those things. Mm -hmm. Because if we can agree like, hey, I want streets safe for my children. Okay. That's something I bet everyone wants. So now when we have discussions about whether we should defund or fund the police or give them more money or less money or body cams or have social workers take the place of them in certain instances, like, okay, but if we can both everyone agree in this room that what we want is for less violence and more safety for the people who are living here, then we can use that as a common ground with which to have a larger discussion. But people almost never get there because they don't actually have the opportunity to express what their base needs are. Mm. It's always buried underneath all this academic baloney, which I think people use as a tool to guard against being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Because if you can keep talking about like funding and statistics and all these other things, then you don't have to be real. You don't have to be raw. You don't have to be true. You don't have to be vulnerable because being vulnerable when you're not sure the other person is going to accept that vulnerability and be vulnerable back to you is a very dangerous place to be because it can leave you feeling sort of naked. Mm. And so you have to create like a common place of vulnerability where you can both be like, you know what, beneath all this, this is what I really deeply need in my soul. And I need you to hear me say it. Exactly. Well, why I think it's so chaotic, and I agree with the points you make, I'm going to circle back to the vulnerability point. People don't really know what they want, I feel. People know what their team wants. Yes. People can express like, this is what Republicans want and Democrats want. This is what the anti-woke ones or the woke ones. This is what. But when you get down to the individual under all of those layers and categories, what do you want? I think it would be a lot of silence. Mm -hmm. What do I want, actually? But the thing about when you're talking about vulnerability is what I've noticed, too. Why can't people just say what they really feel, like what they really want? Like, instead of defund the police or abolish the police, like, say we want safer streets or say we want to feel that the police officers keeping the streets safe, so to speak, for the community is serving and protecting us. Like, just little things like that. But people don't want to be vulnerable. I think people want to be, but they don't feel like they can be because they don't want to be vulnerable to people or a side they feel hates them. Like, why would you want to be vulnerable to that? And it was like I talked about with Brett, the weapons. Yes. People were carrying around weapons and it's like, we don't want to use them, but we feel like, well, we got to have them. We got to hold them because you have yours and we don't know, are you going to swing on us? And if you do swing, we got to be ready. Yes. People don't want it though. Like people don't want to hold it. I'm not saying every single person, but the fact that people are so shocked or so surprised and so receptive to just watching people talk who don't agree and just watching it be successful, meaning it didn't go haywire. And they didn't use their weapons at all. And they watched the weapons drop midway through the discussion. Gives people such sense of hope. That is why I feel most people are like, I'm so done with carrying this weight. Like, I'm done with it. 
I can say, oh, I put my weapons down. I'm sure I have a couple. <laughs> where? Like, if we're going to dig into it, where? Oh, the weapons? Like, where would you say, yeah. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if we were to say, right, because I- I'm sure I have mine too, but where would you say that, let's say, you're still perhaps potentially sensitive or you haven't gotten to that place yet where you can talk with other people about a given topic without worrying that you might become emotionally resistant, right? Which is, of course, like the default human reaction. I think what you've accomplished in your life over the last couple of years is really the exception. So in me asking you this, I'm really just asking like, what mm. part of Brittany is still tethering her to the rest of the human race? <laughs> like, where do you, where, <laughs> I'm trying to ask a kind of intrusive question in a sensitive way, but like, where do you feel like if we were to talk about something that you might still have your weapons up? <sighs> Okay, I'll say there's maybe two things because, I mean, I haven't sat with this. But I'll just say maybe two things. One, I, I was talking about weapons and more so being cautious when just literally physically in life or online or whatever with definitely dealing with race. I mean, racist people exist. And I would be a fool to be like, oh, well, the conversations I have with so many different people shows me that. Racism isn't alive and well. It is. So when it comes to that, I mean, I know I have weapons up. I'm ready to defend myself if it comes to it. And someone calls me racial epithet or whatever, those weapons are probably there. Maybe that's just more protection. But there is one thing that I do have. I can talk about it though. So it's not like I won't be vulnerable, but I do feel emotions brewing when I do discuss this thing. And that is when I hear people comparing Black Americans to Black immigrants and saying, like, why can't Black Americans be like Black immigrants? Why is it like they can get it together or they don't see race or they don't complain about systemic racism or they don't do this and this and this? Why don't they be more like them? Like, that is a little bit of an Achilles heel for me. So the thing is, is I have a lot of black immigrant friends. My brother-in-law is a black immigrant from Nairobi, Kenya. And I had a boyfriend that was from Nigeria that was a black immigrant. I've had the most uncomfortable, no, beyond with them on how, not even them, I will say my brother-in-law more so, but my last boyfriend and some of my friends where they come over when they're 18. They come over when they're 17. So their parents say, don't be around black Americans. They're going to taint you. Like you're already going to be black when you're placed in America. So you're already going to be pricing as a black American. But if you're around black Americans, they're going to assume that you're like them. Be around non-blacks, meaning be around white people or be around good people, whatever group that is. By proxy, it might chisel some of that stigma off of you, so to speak. So. I have a big problem, though, when people compare Black Americans to Black immigrants as if we're the same. Like, this one thing came up, and I won't say where I heard it, because I've been writing this essay on this topic and other things for a while, and I think I've been stalling on it a little bit because it is if people thought it was controversial before, get ready, world. There's this study that was done where someone brought up the idea of systemic racism and if it's real or not. And they're like, well, there's a case study where black immigrants and 
Black Americans, second generation Black immigrants and Black Americans who were birthed in America the same and go through life as Black Americans, so to speak. And they lived in the same city in New York, I believe. I want to say it was Harlem, but I'm not for sure. So I know it was New York, though. And they did this study on these two groups. And I guess, let's just say, I think about 25, you know, when they're in the professional field, they said that the Black Americans suffered the most. They had less people that had professional jobs, more people incarcerated, more people that committed crimes, you know, less people graduated from college. And on the other side, it's complete the antithesis, less people with crime. Maybe no one went to jail. Everyone went to college. Great jobs. So the conclusion with this study was, well, then systemic racism can't be as real as one says because it treats these groups the same because they're black. And racism and race is true. Race is superficial as heck. It doesn't care about who you are. It doesn't care if you came from Africa. or You're in America now. You're black. Your skin's brown. You're a black American. It doesn't care about who you are. It cares about what you look like, period. So they say if systemic racism is a barrier for black people, then it should be a barrier for all of black people. And it should show up. So these second generation people, it should have hit them the same way. And I'm like, I thought about it and I was like, that makes sense, but there's something missing. And it took me a week to realize what was missing. It was like arithmetic almost. I was like, well, if you take black Americans and you take away, you know, what's the difference between black Americans and black immigrants? We have the same skin. We're considered black, but our history isn't the same. We were birthed in America. We're indoctrinated with all of this paranoia and so-called issues and black issues and thinking this is prejudice or this is racialized or whatever. We have history with American slavery, with Reconstruction Era, with Jim Crow, with all of that attached to who we are. Yes, things have definitely changed, not even the same. I wouldn't even say it's even the same, close to being the same as Jim Crow. It's not. Like my dad grew up under Jim Crow. It's not the same. We progress, yes. But to compare Black Americans and the history that we have been birthed out of and we are descendants of, compare that to Black immigrants who come over here, who are the cream of the crop to even get in this country, whose culture is different, who usually, I wouldn't say everyone's wealthy, but they're pretty good financially, and say, why don't you guys straighten up and act like them? What? Bro, one, our history, we have a toxic relationship with America from the start. Black immigrants are just making the acquaintance of America. They're getting off on a good start with America. America's welcoming them inside. We were stolen to be taken here. And you're going to tell us to act like them because they make you feel comfortable? What? And when people said, like, this study proves that there's no systemic racism, I won't even say systemic racism is a mile high wall. No, I don't think that. But to say it doesn't exist at all, then you're essentially saying racism doesn't exist. I see systemic racism differently maybe than other people. And I'm not going to say I'm the only one that thinks this way because I'm not. But there are certain systems perhaps that are like their structures do hit minorities different or specifically black Americans differently. But 
any system can be racist if a racist is at the helm. At my old job, if my boss was racist, that whole structure can be operated on his racism. Take him out. Okay, it's not. So to say that there is no systemic racism because they can thrive. It's like one, you didn't really prove that systemic racism doesn't exist. You actually proved that depending on who you are in your history, it might. And this is what I'm going to get into the essay. So I don't want to get into it too much, but I can say this, that there are certain, some of my friends that are black immigrants come over and 17, 18, they're 30 now, but 17, 18, they told me like, yeah, I did stay with black Americans. That's what I was told. Then I got treated like a black American. Then I realized my parents were wrong. Then I realized I understood your experience because they mistook me as someone that grew up in this country and I didn't. And now they're out there and part of Black Lives Matter. They're out there against racial injustice because they're like, I feel it now. Even if I'm not Black American, in a sense, I kind of am now because people aren't going to ask me, are you from Africa? Oh, okay, cool. You're good. No, they don't care. The thing is, is our realities and our perception of this country is different. Like if someone is Black immigrant and they, let's just say they do experience racism. I don't think it's going to hit them as hard because it's not their history. They're going to be thinking in their mind, oh, they think I'm Black American. And also their first generation is with them in the home or with them in this country, their parents. Like they're still attached to where they come from in a sense. They know their last names. They know their last names. They know their culture. It's been ingrained in them for decades. So that is frustrating. But the thing is, is like, no, what you need to do in a study, what the study should have done, leave Black Americans out of it. Like take first generation Black immigrants and then second generation Black immigrants and see is the way your parents performed the same as you. The way your parents performed in Africa, is it the same over here? I'm sure there would be a decline. So it depends on, and this is a terminology I'm still working on because it sounds bad, but I say this, you know, perception's reality. It's like with systemic racism or whatever you want to call it, that might have hit the Black Americans differently, which then changed their direction or their path on college or this or that or, or whatever, graduating high school or whatever. But maybe not the Black Americans because. Maybe they're just like, not desensitized, but more like, oh, that's not me, though. That's not my history. It doesn't stick on them like it would us. You know what it kind of sounds like? And let me know if I'm off base here. Imagine there's a large family, right? And there's like a grandfather who, and this is going to be quite the analogy, but got to go with it. There's like a grandfather who sexually abused his granddaughters, right? Mm -hmm. And they start growing up and they have this history of abuse that just like was endemic to like all the women in the family, something like straight out of the movie Chinatown. And then let's say he passes away and then the grandchildren start growing up and the women are, are growing older. And then let's say they adopt a five or six year old girl from another family. Grandfather's been dead for like five or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And now the girl is now in the family and she's thinking, man, why are all my like sisters and mothers and aunts so uncomfortable around men? Mm. I don't understand. Men are great. They seem to treat me well. And you know, like every once in a while, I'll, I'll get called something that is upsetting. But like, I don't understand why everyone is reacting so harshly to men in general. And it's like, well, 
you got here after <laughs> mm. our horrible grandfather passed away. Mm-hmm. And like, that's not an exact one-to-one, but what I mean is, is that if you haven't personally experienced that history of deep trauma that gets passed down generation to generation to generation, that is like most black Americans who are not recent immigrants all arrived pre-1850. So like until 1965, every black American in the United States all went through slavery, all went through the Civil War, all went through Jim Crow, all went through redlining, all went through mm-hmm. Brown versus Board of Education. Everyone has those stories in their lineage. It's exactly like you said, like you literally can't make that comparison because one, obviously people who have that history that is passed down to them are going to feel a certain way, mm-hmm. whether they're working through it or growing beyond it or whatever, like it's still something they have to work through. That someone who, even if they are racialized as black in America, as your friends have been, as people I know have been, it's still not going to hit the same because that experience is not calling back to something that your mother went through, that your grandfather went through, that your great grandfather went through. It's just not the same. It really isn't. That actually was a good comparison. It's just so frustrating. But I'm writing it out in an essay, and not just specifically on Black immigrants and Black Americans, but more so to speak to the fact that even if one's reality might not be the reality of the situation, it doesn't matter. It matters about what they think is true. Like, you have to start there. If I may, it is a tricky subject because on one hand, the experiences of Black immigrants experiencing racism or less or smaller levels of racism, on one hand, is a marker that society has improved. Because if you read experiences of the few Black immigrants who made it to America, you know, in 1910, 1920, there were no exceptions made for them at the water fountain, right? On one hand, that is a marker of improvement. But on the other hand, racism does distinguish, modern racism in the 21st century does distinguish between black immigrants and black descendants of slaves. I mean, the thing that you just said earlier about, you know, the parents saying don't hang out with black Americans so it doesn't, you know, rub off on you or whatever. The blackness that is discriminated against today is not just the skin tone, it's and discriminated against historically, but also the quote-unquote culture that is associated with black Americans mm-hmm. and the anti-blackness that is inherent in the assumptions around that culture right? Mm-hmm. So like a lot of American racism against black Americans isn't even necessarily skin tone based. It's like, and again, you'll just have to grant me this. It's like if they see like a Nigerian name on a resume and then like Shaniqua, a white American is going to, because of historical and present baggage, going to make a potential set of assumptions about a woman named Shaniqua, mm-hmm. right? Even if she has like a master's degree or a doctorate that he wouldn't make about, or she wouldn't make about someone with a Nigerian or an Ethiopian name, because we have no history of that culture. There is no baggage associated with it in the same way that anti-blackness has made baggage around those names, those cultural affects, and everything else associated with it. It's just not the same. Mm -hmm. And I think that the writer and journalist Malcolm Gladwell mentioned this in his essay, Black Like Me. He talked about, and I'm paraphrasing, but he talked about when this study or these statistics that came back with certain people who hire black people, like there's a quota, they'll want to hire black immigrants. I mean, they're black people. Yeah. They never said black American people. They said black people. And 
One person in this essay talked about how these employers expressed like they're less tainted. Black immigrants aren't as tainted as Black Americans. And it's like, okay, we'll meet our quota with diversity, but we don't want all this baggage of talking about this or that or just having people call HR because it's this or this. Like, it's just easier to get a Black immigrant. Also, they might think they're more smarter than us because, like I said, they come over, their parents are the cream of the crop, they come over, so, or they are the cream of the crop, they come over. And they're like, oh, you must have, you have a great background, this or that. Like, yeah. But sadly, yeah, if a Nigerian name was compared to Shaniqua, I mean, I'm going to hope that people would be objective, but I would guess Shaniqua wouldn't get the job because they're going to assume like, oh, she's from this and this and this, and this is her background. And even if her, well, I hope if her resume was better, they'd hire her, but who knows? I mean, if it was even. Or maybe a little less. Maybe she was a little better. I think they would rather maybe hire someone that wasn't named Shaniqua. I don't know. But yeah, that is a very complicated subject. I've watched a lot of conversation and debates where there would be like Black immigrants and Black Americans on the panel and they would have discussions. I even saw a panel when Black Panther came out and they had Black Americans and Black immigrants talking about it because in Black Panther, and I'm pretty sure people got it, but I think some people just watched it as an action film. But I saw this as so deep in a sense where, I mean, Wakanda, yes, it's not real, but it was placed in Africa, so to speak, and untouched pure African culture, so to speak. And then over in America, Killmonger grows up and he comes back. And he has all of this, so to speak, anger. And I say that in quotes. And he references his ancestors a lot. Before he died, he said, place me in the ocean where my ancestors jumped off the ships because they knew that death was better than bondage. Saying all of this stuff because even though his dad was actually from Wakanda, they left him there. And then he became Killmonger because of his experiences in America. But Tuchella is Wakanda and grows up in that culture without any American experience, without the stigmas of history over there. They have their own history. They make the rules. He grows up with this confident, very chill, seems like very kind, humble, wants to save the day. And he's met with Eric Killmonger. And Eric is seen as this villain. In a sense, he is the villain. But also his attitude is like villainous too. And he was angry because he was left behind. He was angry because his dad was killed. He had right to be angry. And I would guess one would see Killmonger in Wakanda and be like, why can't you act more like a cousin? Look at how he's acting. Yeah, he's acting this way because he didn't go through what he went through. Not to say you don't go through and I love what I'm saying. Not to say you don't go through anything in Wakanda like it's real, but yeah, that totally. did a lot of deep dive on somewhat the dynamics because it was fictional. Wakanda's not real, but with that, people that look like us, but we are totally different. But then again, we're treated the same in a sense here. Yes. Ish. Those are some uncomfortable conversations. My God. Like, <laughs> Yeah. If you want to be a fly on the wall when I'm talking to my friends or black immigrants and we are just honest with each other, I mean, 
talk about vulnerability and just completely leave it on the table. Yes. I believe it. Yeah. I think that in some ways, what the Black Panther dialogue was tapping into was, I imagine, it's a more immediate version of the literal person who was one generation removed from Wakanda and abandoned. It's a much more immediate version of, I imagine, right? I can't know. But what I imagine is uh, the understory of friction between Black immigrants and Black Americans, especially Black immigrants, I imagine, from West Africa. Because I have to imagine there's some feeling of betrayal there, of the idea of like, we only are here in America, American descendants of slaves, because on some level we were betrayed, right? And in the same way that Mm. Killmonger was betrayed by his fellow Wakandans and left in America, it was people ultimately, I mean, it wasn't Europeans going around with nets. I mean, yeah, they bought them and showed up on the shores or whatever, but ultimately there was a level of betrayal there that happened. And so that, because I've heard these conversations or like I've been in the room a couple of times for these kind of Mm. awkward conversations where I kind of just sit in the corner and drink my drink. But this idea of like newly arrived immigrants being like, well, we don't know why you don't do this and don't do that. And it's like, well, you got to stay, man. We didn't get to stay. I can totally understand why it's so fraught. And in some very disconnected way, I can understand why that discourse that was happening in the movie felt so real to so many people. Yeah. And I don't want people to get the idea that I misconstrued what I'm saying, like Black Americans see Black immigrants as enemies. No. Yeah, I wasn't getting that impression. Yeah, not at all. But I'm very aware of what you've been told, but I'm not at all. Like when my friends tell me, I don't say, well, that's like, no, if you're fed an image of us, that's a horrible representation of us. It's not even true, like a horrible stereotype. And your parents are telling you, this is what this group is. This is what they're about. They don't work hard. They don't do this. And you need to stay away from them. And it takes them to come over here and engage with us and see us and be like, wait a minute. My parents said they only do this and this, but they're doctors and lawyers and they're writers. They're president. Like they're off. Also, they say they exaggerate the racism that comes over here or how they feel as a black American. But then I just got treated like one and it sucks. I remember this man. Well, this one guy, he's a famous writer. He came to NYU and When I heard he was coming, I'm not in this specific class, but I wanted to like join. So I did. And he was talking about how he was ignorant to the plight of black Americans until he had an experience with police. And then he understood the whole idea of police brutality because he endured it. And then from then on, he kind of developed in a sense the paranoia we, we have. Okay, I don't want to say over-exaggerate this. I'm not going to say, like, when I see a police officer, I think, oh, I'm going to die. No, I don't. Depending where I am, and I'm not going to lie, sometimes when I go home and I visit my parents and they live in a suburban neighborhood, mostly, if not all, white couple, maybe one family that's black in that neighborhood. And I know people aren't familiar when they see me because... They haven't seen me since, you know, I was little. And if I'm walking around, if I go for a run or whatever, I make, and it's sad when I go running or walking, I make sure people can see I'm a runner. Like what I'm wearing is running clothes. I'm not running away from anything. I'm running for exercise. 
or if I'm walking and, and I know that sounds like, oh, you're being overdramatic or, oh, here we go with this narrative. Like you can't run while you're black. It's not even that. It's just like this thing that's in my mind just of what I want to be received when I go out there. So I just make sure that people will understand and translate she's running. Because I've had an experience where I had run in my neighborhood and it was cold and I had a hoodie over my head and I had headphones on, but they didn't see that. And a police officer did stop me. But then when he realized I was a woman, I guess, and he was like, where are you going? What are you doing? And then I was like, what? I'm like, I'm exercising. He's like, oh, sorry, miss. Oh, I, I didn't know. Um, and it got awkward. And I'm like, oh, he thought I was running away from something. Or just thought I was just this, maybe I'm tall. And so perhaps he thought, you know, some dude just running. But then when he saw me, he was like, oh, sorry. Like, wrong call. Like, he didn't know what to say. And I just kind of just like, so it happens. I don't think you have to really hedge it all with the stories you're talking about. But I think I can understand why. I think our discourse has gotten so toxic over the last couple of years because everyone is being so reductive, you know, and sometimes people are being kind of absurdist in the stances that they're taking that what it does is it makes people who are sharing legitimate stories of discrimination probably second guess themselves. And I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but I know that people are like, oh my God, if I say that I dress, so I'm not mistaken for someone who isn't jogging, that someone's going to think I'm like, quote unquote, woke or something. But it's like, we have to make space for the fact that this stuff really happens. Like, mm-hmm. I know friends of mine who, when they go out to like, look at cars to buy, they make sure that they're dressed really well. And they don't feel comfortable necessarily going in jogging pants because they're black. They don't want to be assumed that when they're going there, that they don't have money. And it's not an assumption that is going to be made if you're a white dude, right? Mm -hmm. So that idea of like having to wear sort of a uniform that declares what you're doing, like my I am a jogger uniform, my I have money uniform, Mm. like that's real stuff. And I think it says more about how fraught our discourse has gotten rather than anything about you specifically. But I think that I just wanted to note it because I think it speaks to the kind of fraying nature of how we're talking about this stuff at a national level. Yeah, I guess I was doing it more so because I know right when people start maybe speaking the way I speak or bring context in like that, if you're just going to tune out, like, oh, here we go. Because with the whole label thing, oh, she's woke. I'm done with this conversation, which is why these labels are so arbitrary and, and don't do anything for anyone. Yeah. Because the simple fact that I have to go into that much explanation just so people will just keep hanging on to and listen to what I have to say, almost like disarming them, which now I'm like, should I even done that? Probably not, but whatever. That's what all these words and this red pill of anti-woke and woke like complicates just honesty. People just can't even be honest because they're going to think, oh, this is that. That's the narrative that sounds like this. Therefore, they're in this one category. That's not an individual anymore. That's probably what I was trying to do. I was trying to like keep it tethered on me as me. Like I'm not speaking for this team or this side. I'm speaking for Brittany King. This is what I have been through. And I'm just telling you the truth. I feel like we're having the conversation equivalent of like when you're walking down the street and someone's walking the other direction and you both make eye contact and you know one of you has to move to the left or to the right. And so you start moving in the same direction as you're trying to pass one another. Yep. We just had a collision. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. We both bumped into each other. <laughs> Regarding the woke and anti-woke labels, yeah, I find them so pointless, right? Because, and I used this example online once, if you're someone who doesn't want privilege lines being used in elementary school, but you run and have founded a after-school tutoring program for writing and math that is in a predominantly Black and Latino neighborhood, are you woke or anti-woke by our definitions today? Mm -hmm. I just feel like these labels that we give one another are really only to write other people off, not really to make any kind of deeper understanding of what drives us and what motivates us. Mm -hmm. And then we're also terrified of being labeled as these things because we know that the moment someone labels us, they can write us off. And I experience this on Twitter quite a bit because I'll have a conservative retweet me and it'll be like, just like a typical liberal, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And then I'll have some person who's like on the progressive left being like, just like a typical liberal, mm -hmm. you know, like this is this neoliberal stuff that we're always fighting against, blah, blah, blah. Yep. And I'm like, okay, you read like one tweet of mine. You've never heard the show, exactly. but you really have me pegged. Way to go. Exactly. I mean, this is the same people that want everyone to be an individual, but don't do that. Don't <laughs> see people as individuals. Like, that's what I see. I think everyone's just so hypocritical and contradicting. But yeah, I don't consider myself woke or anti-woke. I'm just not woke. The reason yeah. why is right now with American Shade and just my work, like I'm trying to examine the fight between the woke and the anti-woke. One could even say like, oh, the anti-CRTers were the anti-woke and then the woke was the pro-CRTers. But I wanted to do that because I'm trying to examine like what is the fight, but what's the common ground between the two? And also I feel like it would be hypocritical of me to say I'm woke or anti-woke as a journalist or an independent journalist. Because one, my goal is to be as objective as I can and not come into a situation with bias. So I'm not, if I say I'm anti-woke, it's like, automatically, it seems like I'm fighting the woke. It's almost like anti-racist and racist, you know? You can't yes. be a not racist. You're either racist and doing racism all the time, or you're anti-racism and you're fighting racist all the time. Like, that's either right. what you're doing. And the same with woke. It's yeah. like you're either woke and you're pushing this narrative and these thoughts, or you're anti-woke and you're pushing against that narrative and those thoughts all the time. And I'm not fighting no bun. Like, if whatever conclusion I come out with, it might be challenging the woke and it might be challenging the anti-woke. And I did make a tweet and it wasn't recently, but I said something about red pilled. And mm. because one is like, I know it's the matrix thing, like people get red pilled and you see reality for what it is. And then versus blue pilled. So people are like, oh, the people that are woke are blue pilled and people that are red pilled are awakened ones, whatever. And people even like, oh, Britney's red pilled now. And I find that so condescending. I find that so freaking condescending when people are like, Britney's red pilled or, oh, Britney gets it now or welcome to whatever. I'm so glad you're out of that. It's like, who are you? As if you've always mm -hmm. been out of something. Yeah. Who are you to be like, grant me access into your world? Please stop it. Yeah. The condescension. Yeah. Like, what are you actually trying to say? Now you're thinking like, really? Like. <laughs> It's so toxic. It's just like red pill is just another version of woke to me. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Because if yeah. you think you're now all knowing is exactly what you are saying about woke people that they think they're, you're not all knowing. You don't know nothing. How about that one? Like no one knows everything. 
everyone thinks they're so sure of everything. And that's the problem. And I feel like people that can really have these problems. It's like the thing about people like, let's just say James Baldwin and Jordan Peterson. Let's just put them together. They're completely different. They are both incredibly intelligent. James Baldwin isn't just great because he was black. and No, he was just a great writer, period. But James didn't think he knew everything. James was always engaged in conversations with people younger than him that would challenge him. And he wouldn't treat it like, oh, I'm your elder. No, he would be on ground level with them and listening to them. While they're telling him, telling James Baldwin, he's wrong. But he's still, because he wasn't like, I'm James Baldwin and no, I'm above approach. No. Even though one would say that, even though millions of people would say that, he was always a student. Even when he was a master, he was always a student. And I feel like with that with Jordan, I feel Jordan seems open as well to being proven wrong if he is wrong or like he doesn't know everything, but he knows so much. And so when people just walk around thinking they are the truth bearers, and thinking they're on the side where everyone gets it. And then think it's a compliment to be like, oh, you're going to go far now, Brittany. Oh, yeah, I'm so glad you're out of that mentality. Excuse me, sir, are you? <laughs> That's when I really pray. I'm like, God, give me <laughs> peace. That's I don't know this understanding. I know that scripture I'm babbling now, but Lord help. Yeah. Can I put a question to you? Yeah. I feel like I already know your answer, but I want to ask it because I think it's interesting. Your YouTube following has grown pretty consistently over the last, you know, seven, eight months. And like I said, you've appeared on the Dark Horse podcast and you've had some pretty phenomenal guests on your show. Are you ever tempted to just pick a side and explode? <laughs> you know what I mean? Whether it was you just decide to go full woke and, you know, you start making video essays that are going to go just completely viral because it's like you make one titled things white people need to stop doing or whatever, or you go the other direction, right? And I think it especially catches viral, if we're just being honest with ourselves, like when a black person goes full anti-woke, it can oftentimes lead to their YouTube channel just exploding in the course of six months, right? It can be lucrative, yeah. Yes, yeah. And because I know you have views that are on both sides of that, right? If we're being reductive when we're categorizing things, I'm sure we could say that there are some views of yours that if we had to put them in buckets would be considered anti-woke. And then if we had to put them in buckets, they'd be considered woke and these stupid labels. Mm -hmm. But has that ever, as a creator, have you ever seen other channels and been like, oh man, if I just leaned a little bit in either direction, I could probably explode within like three months. No, I can honestly say that. <laughs> I didn't think so, but... <laughs> I don't. And people might be like, yeah, right. I 100% could have 500,000 subscribers right now if I did that. I know I could. You know what videos of yours have gone viral, and I'm sure if you just kept doing those videos over and over again. It's funny because those videos went viral, but I didn't... They went viral like while they were sitting there for months, but I didn't think those would go viral to be real. But I'm not a clout chaser. I really think because I just feel like I'm aligned with what I'm doing. And I feel like, well, it is Sunday. I can get biblical. Listen up. I'm doing a sermon now. Just kidding. But like, I feel like I know that God has a purpose for this. It's bigger than me. And I'm not even saying like, oh, because I have a huge following. No, I might not ever break 100,000. I don't know. 
Now, I will be honest with this. Like I have seen people who have started with, let's just say 5,000 or like way less. And then I saw them changing their content to be more viral. And now they have a lot more than me. And yeah, I'm like, well, of course you're like, dang, I guess. But I never think, well, I'm going to do that now. No, because what I'm doing, I see the difference it's making. And it's funny because I just told my friend this. So like you said, yeah, my Twitter has grown from when we talked. I think I maybe broke 2,000. Now I'm almost at 7,000. I don't even tweet as much now. I'm even on Twitter that much. It's probably for the best. Yeah, because I, I have so <laughs> many. I have more followers now. And I don't even want to even tweet weed out like I always am careful what I tweet but I'm thankful I'm not gonna say oh follow no I'm thankful people are following because they, they're wanting more updates on content and stuff like that that's great but there's more weight now when you tweet something out I don't I don't just tweet stuff just to tweet stuff I don't but yeah I could easily do stuff to go viral so this is something and I hope if he hears this he doesn't take it in a bad way I don't want him to so I've, the two videos I did on Jordan Peterson, because like, oh, black woman talking about Jordan Peterson. This is new. People click on it. And Jordan Peterson actually has tweeted out like three of my videos. Wow. I've only retweeted one of his tweets of my stuff. The last two that he retweeted, I didn't retweet it because I didn't want people to think I'm just attached me to him so much. And I don't want him to think that's mm -hmm. bad. I don't want that at all. Because I could have tweeted that and I could have got like a thousand likes. I don't care about likes. Who gives a crap? It was click on a heart. Woo. But I didn't want <laughs> too much attachment to Jordan Peterson because I'm Brittany King. Yeah. Not Brittany yeah. King who always talks about Jordan Peterson. And I knew like if I retweet this, it's just going to attach me too much to him. Yeah. You're not a bad person. Yeah. It's a through line to your whole ethos. It's a through line to all of your work. You're echoing a statement that you've made a few times in this conversation, which I think is an important one, which is that you just are resisting labels, whether it's you being the Jordan Peterson girl or the woke person or the anti-woke person or whatever it is. You want people to judge you and your views as Brittany King's views, not this person that they think you are before they get to know you. And I think that it's very easy online, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, for people, one, to get categorized prematurely, and two, to embrace that categorization and then just make that their thing. And I think the poll is real because I think the algorithm rewards people who are continuously posting about like the same thing on YouTube. I think that branding just in general just rewards that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I share that similar impulse. Like there have been a couple of times on Twitter where people will be like, here's a list of anti-woke people that I follow. And like every once in a while, I'll get tagged in that. And I don't know what to do. Oh my gosh, yes. There's a part of me that wants to like reply and be like, please don't do that. Yes. But on the other hand, like I don't want to be rude, but I do not consider myself that. And I don't like when you're labeling me that, but I don't know how to broach it mm. because I don't want to be and there have been a couple times where like someone's made some disparaging thing about like, oh, here you are with your woke, blah, blah, because I mentioned something about race. They're like, oh, you're woke. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> but there have been a couple times where people have been like, who are some interesting anti-woke voices that I should follow? And like, I'll make it on a list. And I'm like, no, yeah, do not group me with those people. Yeah. Yeah, it's happened to me. And I remember this one, I don't know the last two it was, something more or less like, here's a bunch of, and I think he said like anti-woke people to follow on Twitter and we were all black 
He's like, and I'm thankful that they don't blame their skin or history or whatever for their problems, something like that. Like it wasn't like that verbatim, but that was the just. They don't embrace victimhood or exactly like something like that. And and I was like, you're pinning me against people that I am with. You know what I mean? Like I'm not against them, and I'm not against you doing that. Is you're basically saying these are the people they should be like. And that's what I'm hearing you say, even if you're not saying that. And so I had the same reaction you did. Like, should I say something? Should I? So I did say something, but I said it within a Rihanna gif. And it was just Rihanna looking at something and putting her glasses down and looking confused. (laughs) And so I posted that under there and I said, well, there's some things that I don't blame or something like that. He's like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like just a healthy balance or something. I'm just like, bro, just Mm -hmm. take me off this list, dude. That's one thing I also can't stand is when people think all independent black thinkers think the same. They think all black heterodox thinkers think the same, but then there's like your individuals, but we all think the same though. Like, I don't get it. It's the, yeah. It's like, you're all independent thinkers who all agree, (laughs) but they think that because we are an unorthodox people that have the same skin so we all must think the same within our unorthodox point of view because we share the same skin yeah you can't break out of the racial category no anywhere you go clearly yeah it's just racecraft all the way down yeah yeah people just think that oh you guys all think that no there's so much i disagree with people or heterodox that i'm like no that i don't agree with that but i feel the need to twitter beat them no so people might not know I disagree unless they see like a contrasting tweet that I have like, oh, you said this and this person said this. Oh, you think you're going to do that. And I will call them out when it's that over. I champion diverse black thought, period, bro. So you telling another black American to be like me, you don't know my work then. Mm-hmm. And I think I made this joke with you. Like, I'm no one's heterodox Negro. I'm not. You're not going to use me against people in my community. No, you're not. Even if they don't agree with me. Even if. Yeah. I don't care. Do not do that. Also, another thing I can't stand. We're going down the line. I'll just end with this on pet peeves. So, I respect. And I do like Thomas Sowell. I really want to have a conversation with him. Just on life. He was born a day before me. I was born July 1st. He was born June 30th. Obviously, he's older than me. He's 90, I think, 91. And I think he's brilliant. Mine. Do I agree with him on everything? No. But there are things where he says that are like, woo, that's controversial, but it's the truth. It just is. But what I can't stand is people that are, I'll just say not woke, that love to use Thomas Sowell as like, mm-hmm. The thing to be. Hmm. You all need to be like him. He gets it. But I almost am like, do you like Thomas Sowell because you think he talks down to black people? Is that why you like Thomas Sowell? Because you think he says the things you want to say? Because when I hear Thomas Sowell, I think he's hard, so to speak, on the black community. Like I use this expression and I don't know why I use this, but like in gym class, your gym teacher says do 10 push-ups, and you do 10. And they're like, no, do 10 more. You're like, I can't do anymore. Like, no, you can do 10 more. And they push you and you're crying. And then you do it. And you're like, dang, I didn't know I could do 10. I see Thomas mm-hmm. like that. He cares about the black community. Yes. And also he's, 
he's older and he probably doesn't care to phrase it, you know, in a way where it sounds nice. He's like, this is dire. you got to know this information. Like, I just got to give it to you like this. And he's from a certain generation. And he's from a certain generation that's more direct. And he has so much research in books, still writing books, where it's like enough proof is in the dog on pudding Mm -hmm. that I'm not sugarcoating this. Like, you have to get it like this, raw and uncut and unfiltered. So people can see that as one. Oh, he's talking down to black people. Oh, he's whatever. I don't see it like that. I see him. He cares a lot about black people or else he wouldn't do mm-hmm. so much work and dedicate decades of his life, half a century of his life to the work if he didn't care about black people. But I feel like some people like him because they feel like black people have leave a bad taste in his mouth, the same bad taste that mm-hmm. other people feel. Yeah. I'm wary of anyone who has only read Thomas Sowell and has never read Baldwin. Like oh anyone gosh. who's exclusively read Sowell and no other black authors, then I get that vibe that you're explaining. And I don't want to say Thomas Sowell is like a confirmation bias. I don't even want to say that. I don't even want to say that. Like I did this episode where I talked about 15 favorite minds that I love. Thomas Sowell was on the list as well as Dave Chappelle, Anthony Bourdain, Ida B. Wells. But it was funny, like people were like, oh, I never heard of Ida B. Wells, which is like one of the most famous black journalists or journalists ever. And oh, I never heard of Toni Morrison, one of the famous writers. Never heard of James Bond. I'm like, how do you never heard of these people? But then they're like, oh, Thomas Sowell, yeah. I'm like, how are you only hearing Thomas Sowell and you've never heard of Baldwin is like Mark Twain. How do you not know Baldwin? Yeah. And I think what that points to is that they're seeking out And this doesn't happen just with race stuff, but in this case, it is. It's like they're seeking out or have been shown a voice that agrees on the surface, right? Because again, I agree with you that you can't read a lot of Soul's work and not come away with the fact that he has a deep love for his community and is explaining in his own way Black excellence. And he's dispelling what he sees as misinformation Mm -hmm. around why... In my view, a lot of his work is very anti-racist from his lens, him talking about the cultural inheritance of how black Americans from the 1800s inherited a lot of culture from poor Scottish whites or whatever. Like the basis of his work is there's nothing inherently wrong with quote unquote us. There's nothing deficient Mm -hmm. and we have a proud history, right? And he Mm -hmm. writes about it in a very data-driven analytic way. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff he says, like you said, is delivered in like this kind of raw, unfiltered fashion. But I think a lot of people who don't know how to place or haven't placed his work in a greater context of the black intellectual discourse will just take it as like an own the libs, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mantra. But you can only come away with that if you don't understand the larger conversation in which his work has to be placed, Mm -hmm. you know? Exactly. And it's sad that I even... I really hate that I have that in the back of my mind, like people reference him because he should be referenced. People should know him. Yeah. But just when people use him, like the scapegoat, like I'm not racist because I'm using a black man. See, it's like, no, you're manipulating him in a sense to me. Yeah. And I don't use this lightly, but the hardest I have ever, and this is such an online thing, so apologies to my listeners, but the hardest I have ever been ratioed on Twitter 
to this day, and I've actually never been ratioed except for right now, to be ratioed is when you get more comments on a tweet than likes. Mm. And what that means is just to the average person, it means that more people are commenting than liking it. Mm -hmm. And and they're commenting usually because they want to express disfavor with what you've written. (laughs) And so I should have deleted the tweet and just saved myself the trouble, but it was like eight hours of hell. And what I tweeted was, I said, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something to the effect of white conservatives when talking to black liberals online should think twice or give more thought to quoting black authors like Thomas Sowell to black liberals when they're talking to them. I like that tweet. (laughs) I remember that tweet. Because you are what you're doing there. And look, I'm not one to mind read, but like what you are trying to do there, in my opinion, whether you know it or not is you are trying to make your point through a black mouth, like through a black voice, in order to feel like your point can be better made, right? And Mm -hmm. like, look, on one hand, I am sympathetic to it because in conversations around race, I can understand how a white person might feel uncomfortable voicing what they feel is in their heart, whether it's conservative or liberal or something, so they feel more comfortable quoting a black person, right? But that's my most generous read of that. But what I think it often is, is exactly what you articulated, which is, well, I mean, it has to be valid because a black person said it, which is just, again, it shows, in my opinion, like not a very deep understanding of what the discourse around black America is. And also, you don't understand how insulting that comes across. Mm -hmm. Like if a white person was talking to a black person and a black person started quoting white people to them. Mm. It sounds absurd me saying that because white people have just never experienced it. Yeah. If I'm being blunt. No one has ever tried quoting white people to me to make a point. Why don't you be more like this person? <laughs> right, exactly. Like, why don't you be more, <laughs> why don't be more like this random Robin white person? Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, is when that happens, and it's not every single time, because there's some people that quote soul and it's just quoting him. That's fine. But then when people try to fight behind soul, it's almost like they're like, look, this black person said this. All right. Now get in line, other black person. Or be more like him, as if they're positioning Soul like as this respectable black person. Like he's the kind that we like. Get on his program. That is what I get in a sense when some people weaponize Soul on black people, and I cannot stand it. Or when people discover my channel and they're like, "Have you read Thomas Soul? You should read Thomas Soul." Or the next person you should read or do a video on Thomas Soul, or like. Oh, yeah, you're ready for Thomas Sowell now. I'm like, wow. Ooh, you're ready for him, Brittany. Yeah. As if you really think you're I don't know who Thomas ready Sowell is, bro. <laughs> like, you really don't think I know Thomas uh, Sowell. You can't fight everyone. And there's no need to fight with that. But yeah. on Twitter, though, when people try to do that, no. So many yeah. YouTube comments, you're like, whatever. But it's like, I want to know, why do you like him? Is it because of what he says and what he writes? Or is it because of what you think he's thinking? And you're hoping mm-hmm. it's aligned with you which isn't really anything you say out loud. Like, I really yeah. want to know if that's it. So yeah, it's tough, right? I mean, because we're all tied up in and I keep referencing this word over and over again, because the book and the term has really impacted me. It's like, we are all caught up in this racecraft thing, right? I am empathetic to, I mean, as a white person, right? Like I'm empathetic <laughs> to white people who come across soul and they connect with him, right? Because I mean, it is like very analytic and data driven. And there's some really interesting, I think, historical stuff in there that I wasn't taught in history class, like the Scottish immigrant culture that is kind of infused in a lot of what we now identify with black American culture that happened in the early 1800s. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't learn that in history class. 
And to me, I looked at that as a, wow, like we are all way more interconnected. It is way more omni-American. We are all less, quote unquote, all black and quote unquote, all white. We are interconnected as Americans, right? And the things that we think of as black culture and white culture are in and of themselves in many ways constructs because we have been interacting with one another, we, right? Mm -hmm. As black Americans and white Americans, we've been interacting with each other the whole time. And that I found really interesting. But on that same note, it does bum me out that there are people on the left, white and black, right? Or of any color, who immediately will write off Thomas Sowell, either having not read him because they hear he's quote unquote conservative. And then they'll be like, oh, I don't want to read him because I'm not going to use the slurs that I'm sure you know the mm-hmm. ones he's been called, mm-hmm. right? But like a traitor and all these other things, right? And that bums me out too, because again, it's like you've said so often, you don't have to agree with everything he says, but you can at least appreciate his voice in the chorus of dialogue that has been going on within Black America for as long as it's been around, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and, and if people do call him those words where we know what he's been called, I do challenge that too. Like, well, why is he this? So a black man can't think how he wants? Why not? Yeah. Like, I'll challenge right. that too. But it's just people keep hiding behind sides and people and this. And like you said, it's this vulnerability thing. Like, people just don't want to be vulnerable. Like, why can't you just say what you want to say without even referencing yeah. soul as your backup? As your mm-hmm. hype man or whatever. Yeah. Or Kendi or D'Angelo or... <laughs> yeah, anyone. Yeah. Why can't people just say what they think? Like I said, they don't know what they think, maybe. Or it's fear because not everyone is Britney King, especially if people are talking online or they want to broach it with like a, a black acquaintance or a colleague or a friend or a coworker or whatever. It's like because of the fact that for most of American history, we've been separate from one another... And even if we've been living in proximity or even working alongside one another, there haven't been a ton of interracial friendships or relationships until relatively recently. There's a lot of ignorance floating around there. And the idea of being able to like be upfront with your ignorance so that you can learn and be vulnerable with someone else is really terrifying because how many rolls of the dice are you going to have to make to come across a Britney? Right. Like to come across someone who, Mm -hmm. if you say I was walking through the park, which comes from a good place, right, which comes with like, I want to be able to connect with other people. And now I feel afraid to. You can't always guarantee. And this is no fault on anyone on the receiving end. Like, look, you don't owe. I say this to anyone. You don't owe anyone your time Mm -hmm. or your empathy to explain things to them. But ultimately, that is how we'll move forward. But I think most people are like, I am terrified to say this because I'm potentially going to look bad. Mm. And I think people are just scared. I agree with that. And that's why I'm such a proponent about just thinking for yourself. And I say it so many times on my channel, I'm not here to persuade you to think like me at all. And actually, I'm, I get weary when people message me and they're like, just everything you say is so true. Like, And I can tell like, oh, okay, maybe we still align in our thinking. But then when people just think I'm the gospel, I tell them, no, I'm not. Like I make sure I'm like, no, I want you to think for yourself. That's what I want people to do. Because if you can think for your own self, you take time to kind of get to know you and what you really are for. And perhaps that person that hides behind soul or hides behind D'Angelo or Kindy, if they like really got to know themselves and what they think, instead of just diving into what other people think and being the vessels for them only retweeting what they say, that they could probably articulate their point where they won't come off 
badly in quotes I'm saying, because they will have taken time to say, okay, how am I going to communicate this on Twitter? Or how am I going to communicate this in this email? Or how, how am I going to communicate this without shielding myself behind someone else? And when you think for yourself, you have to sit with yourself. And sometimes you, that might be uncomfortable for people. Maybe Very, people don't want yeah. to sit with themselves and realize who they are. That without the fray, without the being in Twitter and yelling and being on his side and being against those wokers, being against those anti-wokers, being against liberals and conservatives or Democrats, or Republicans, black people, white people, all this stuff. And then when you're at home sitting with yourself, without all of that chaos around your mind, it's just you, yourself, and yourself just sitting and thinking. You might be more uncomfortable with that than fighting with 5,000 people on Twitter because you're like, man, I don't like myself. Man, I don't even like how I think. Well, I don't like these private thoughts that I have about these people. But if you stay inside of this space, where it's just constant defense and like just constantly projecting all of that on a person when you should be saying that to yourself and getting yourself in order, cleaning your own room. We all know who said that. Then I think that is why I think so many people are just so uncomfortable with themselves. I really do. I think that. And they just shield themselves behind so much stuff. Like, we don't even know. Yeah. People aren't even fighting people. Like, people are just fighting labels. Like, they don't even see you. They see woke. They're fighting a woke person. They're fighting an anti-woke person. They don't see you. Yes. They see your handle on Twitter. Ooh. They might see your name's Jim, but they're not fighting Jim. They're fighting a woke person. And all the other woke people they've been fighting. You're the same person. You're about to get it the same. And that's why I'm not for yes. these labels. Yes, they're fighting an avatar. Yeah, I'm not for these labels and I'm not for any more binaries because if you pick a side, you're automatically in a fight. You're in a war. Mm-hmm. And you're in a you're yeah. many now because there's so much going on. And that's part of the problem is everyone feels like they have to fight. And at the end of it, it's like, okay, we all disagree, but it's easier to fight the label, like a woke person, than it is to fight Jim. If everyone saw everyone as an individual, that's harder to do because, like you said, depending on what you tweet, people just say, oh, you're woke. Oh, you're anti-woke. <laughs> Not that you're John. You're this. And now I can just get all my scripts out that I say to these type of people. Here you go. Yeah. All their scripts. Because then they have to stop wrestling with me. They have to stop wrestling with you as an individual. And then they can just put you in a bucket and then speak to you that way or not speak to you at all. Mm -hmm. Because wrestling with the complexities of who you are, of the fact that Brittany is in many ways a very different person than she was six months ago, a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. that we are all constantly changing and fluid and are becoming new people all the time. People want to, understandably, because that's how we think and how our minds work, we want to freeze people in time and put a label on them. Because if we can't even make time, as you said, if we can't even make time to wrestle with the complexities of our own inner working minds, we're certainly not going to take the time to wrestle with the inner complexities of someone else's mind because we can barely sit in silence with our own. Mm, That is true. 
that is true. And that's exactly was the breaking point of how this whole journey started with me. And so I don't like labels and I keep saying heterodox, but that's the only way people just get it. This is like, what are you going to do? But yeah, sitting with myself after I was completely taken a task and challenged on my, what I thought and realized deep down, like a lot of this was attached to feelings and identities and things I thought I should think. And the fact that I realized I was like, oh my gosh, there's echoes of this and that. I don't even know why. It was taking time to sit with myself and interrogate myself and get to the bottom of who I am. It was very uncomfortable. I said to my friend, it was like an identity crisis for real, realizing that one, I was wrong about a certain situation of how my ideas were being challenged. I thought it was because everyone in the room was wrong. And when I say I it wasn't a feeling. I mean, I thought all of you are so blind to what's going on. Like, how can you all not understand like that this is right? Like you all are racist. But then when, and I think I talked about it in this last podcast, so sorry if I'm being redundant, but like it took that literal breaking. And it's hard for me to explain how I do not mean to offend anyone with this comparison. It's not the same. It's not the same. It's not the same. Okay. I am thinking like, it's just so people feel the shock of it. It was like realizing I was wrong and realizing I had work to do with how I thought about things and what my ideas were. It was almost like finding out I was adopted. Like that shock, my parents aren't my parents. Open up the photo album and seeing like, no, these are your family. Like it was just that, this can't be true. Like, who am I type thing? You were having an identity crisis. Identity crisis. I really was because my identity was so much tied into how I thought. It was my vetting system. It was how I came to conclusions. And I just was like, I am so wrong. When I realized I was wrong and I really just honest with myself, like, Brittany, you are so wrong. And the fact that I know I'm wrong because when I went back and I redid my whole essay for my grad school class, whatever, like, and realizing when I did it objectively and logically and took time and whatever and didn't strong man the person, but strong man them and still man them. And I was so wrong, man. And that is scary that I was so wrong. And it took months for me to realize I was that wrong. And then after I graduated, I just said, now it's time for you to start getting a hold of your mind. (laughs) And you really have to understand why you haven't been thinking for yourself. You have to understand why you've been allowing your emotions to dictate your beliefs. One thing that I think is so true about what you're saying is certainty the idea that what you know is true and what you know is right and certain can feel very powerful and can feel very safe right because there's a lot of safety in knowing or having the feeling of knowing that you're right and that you are on the quote unquote right side and when you all of a sudden realize that everything that you thought or most of what you thought was real and true about the world is actually just one point of view out of dozens, if not hundreds, can be incredibly stabilizing. 
But if you can make peace with that uncertainty, there is actual true power in embracing that uncertainty and embracing the fact that you are forever a work in progress and will always continue to learn and change. And then if you can embrace that fluidity, and I've said this to friends of mine, I think I might've even said it to a guest. It's like, if I look back on the first five or 10 episodes of this show, let's say a year or two years from now, and I don't cringe a little bit, or if I don't think like, wow, I don't think that anymore. If I don't look back and think that, if I don't look back and disagree with some things I've said, in many ways, this podcast will have been a failure Mm. because it means that I actually haven't absorbed or learned anything from my guests and that I haven't grown in the process of researching and talking and learning from the people I'm talking with. Mm -hmm. I used to find a lot of joy years ago in going to a YouTube channel and I know, well, every single time I tune in, I'm going to get the exact same kind of take. And that take tells me that the world is this sort of way, Mm -hmm. you know, and people find a lot of comfort in that because if you're in an echo chamber where everyone's telling you that you're right, feels very powerful. Mm -hmm. But after a while, because of events in the last several years that I've talked about on the show, it's like, it's a mirage. Like this isn't real. Like this certainty that I'm feeling is fake. And I'm embracing that certainty as a safety blanket, not because it's actually truth. Mm -hmm. And living in that uncertainty, it can feel a lot more chaotic because then you have to sort of second guess a lot of things. But if you can make peace with it, it opens you up to a lot of better and healthier conversations. And it allows you to listen to, watch, and read great thinkers that you never would have before, Mm -hmm. which ultimately makes you a more well-rounded person in my humble view. It's true. And the thing you said about being a work in progress, like once you like grant yourself that, it's like you automatically grant other people that. That's an element of why I don't feel the need to fight people. Because you see yourself in them. Yeah, I really do. I feel like I'm a work in progress. You are too. I don't know everything. You don't either. When you have a conversation with someone that thinks they are the progress, or thinks they know everything. No, I am the truth. It's not easy having conversations with those people at all. But even through that, I know that's a facade. Like, even if you say, I know you don't know everything. Like, you just don't. Well. Brittany, as always, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And what's great about talking with you is that, you know, it's been almost three hours now that we've been talking back and forth. And it feels like it's just flown by. And Mm -hmm. and it was the same way when we had our first conversation as well. But look, I could easily talk to you for another two or three, but I know Mm -hmm. it's getting late over there on the East Coast. (laughs) And I'm sure you have a lot left to do. So I want to be respectful of your time and would absolutely love to have you on the show again in the future. Mm -hmm. But before I let you go, even though you've already answered this question in the past, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you once again, because I'm sure you have new people on your mind. It's the question I ask every guest. As individuals, as you know, we are limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person who is potentially the host of American Shade, can't be thinking of every person, every group of people all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just simply impossible. There's not enough hours in the day, right? Mm -hmm. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Oh, Lord. Ending with the light question. Ooh, I know. (laughs) I think there's a group of people who... I know many people in this group, and I say that with heavy quotes, that 
are the well-meaning people we keep referring to who really just want to do good, just want to be good people. And they've been told these are the things you need to do to be good. And I feel like because we're human and we have intuition, instincts, like sometimes we know when something's off. But if a majority is saying something and you know if you go against the majority and you'll be labeled the very thing you're trying to stay far, far away from, you might stay silent because you want to be good. I will say if you really want to champion the voices you say matter, you have to be as honest as you can with yourself by yourself and just be like, logically make sense of what you're reading and thinking and doing and ask yourself, is what I'm doing right now or what I'm going to do tomorrow or the meetings I'm going to, the conversations I'm having or the thing I'm trying to implement, is this really going to better race relations with this other group and myself and the group I'm in? And also, is what I'm doing actually championing these lives? Or am I infantilizing these lives? Like, am I actually making a difference in their life, a fundamental generational difference? Or am I kind of being a coward and doing this thing because it makes me look good at the sacrifice of their progression? And I know that's it. But other people are saying, no, this is the way. And you know it's not. I know there's people that are just trying to do good when it comes to this racial divide. They're just gotten tangled up in a web and they're, now they're so tangled in it, they don't even know where to go, what's left or right. They don't even know the way out. But you have to be honest. If you really care about bettering race relations, you might have to go against your pack if you think what you're doing is actually damaging the people that you're trying to ally for. All because a majority says something doesn't mean that that's right. All because a majority says this is the way to go doesn't mean that it's right. doesn't mean that is the solution. And if your gut is telling you it, because I know there's people that have that in them. Because I've had the conversations with people and they've been like, man, that's how I felt. I felt something was off, but I just was told like I had white fragility or I was told I was co-opting or the conversation or I was told this or this, but I was like, no, I care about this community. And I feel like what I'm doing is actually white supremacy in a sense. If you answer that to yourself, honestly, is the best thing you can do for that other group. And if it is the latter, or if you can't even answer it, it probably is the answer you don't want to know. Like you don't want to be honest with. But this country is not going to get better with people denying that voice inside you that's saying this is not right. This is not aligned with logic of an outcome for these people. This is actually down the line going to make things worse. If you care about bettering and being really progressive, you got to ask yourself those questions. And I use the word coward not to say like anyone can be a coward. I can be a coward. But it, it is being a coward if you know what you're doing on paper is not right. But online, it makes you look good. That's being a coward, straight up. But the thing is, no one's perfect. So that's the good news. We all are cowards in our own ways on different things. 
No one has it all together. You're human. You can change anytime you want, but you have to first be honest or you won't ever change and nothing will ever change. So that is the group I want to talk to. The people that are like, I want to do good. I don't know if this is good. If you feel that, it probably isn't. So yes, that's the group I'm talking to. And I don't know if that was very vague, but I think I got my point across. No, I don't think it was vague at all. I think it speaks to the kind of theme of the episode, which is that to really pursue truth, you have to wrestle with feelings of uncertainty. And listening to that part of you, if you're in a crowd, when that pressure feels immense, whether it's a crowd on the right or the left or somewhere in between, and everyone is saying something that in your gut feels wrong to you, the answer is to listen to that voice, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's incredibly well said. And I echo that sentiment. And one of the reasons that I enjoy your show and just enjoy you as a person is you're not afraid to discover yourself and change in real time. And your YouTube channel is a perfect example of that. And like I said, it started off as just one woman just reacting to videos and sharing her mind unfiltered. And it has become a place where you are encouraging dialogue with multiple people at a time, hosting panels in which, as you've said, sometimes barely say a word mm -hmm. because you just sit back and you encourage people to talk with one another, whether they're guests on your show or just members of your audience. Mm -hmm. And so I'm excited to see where American Shade continues to go. Yeah. Thanks again so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's always fun. And yeah, we've been talking forever and it, doesn't, it never feels like it. I was like, <laughs> it's been what? It's been a day? No way. Yeah. Anytime I'm coming back on, it's always great talking. Well, thank you. 